What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. Very glad to be with you on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. This program is just for you if you are a non-Catholic. Maybe you were a Catholic years ago, fell away from the faith for uh, really whatever reason. Maybe you've never been a Catholic, uh, but uh, in any event, you've got some questions about the Catholic faith, which is the whole reason for this show to exist. Here's our phone number. If you have a question, let's get the answer for you. 833 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that is uh, ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery back with us. Very glad to have him back. He's our producer. Also, we have uh, Matt Kabinsky standing by to answer your questions. Uh, on the phone, that is. He's our, uh, he's, he's our screener, so he's the first voice that you will hear. Rich Jesse handling social media today. If you want to ask a question via, oh, Facebook or YouTube, just put your question in the comments box. Rich will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and we will take it from there. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Very well. You, sir? Oh, I'm doing decent. Thank you. Glad to hear that. We're going to lead off here with a question from Kelly. Could you please explain the perpetual virginity of Mary? Uh, Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So in terms of what the doctrine teaches, it means that Mary, of course, never had sexual relations of any kind with any person, and that in the act of parturition, of giving birth to the Son of God, that the physical integrity of her body was maintained. So, So, you know, a medical exam, if such a thing had been performed, would have indicated her virginity even after the birth of Christ. Okay. Um, Now, as to the logic of it, why the perpetual virginity? Well, you know, there are hints and intimations in sacred scripture, uh, Mary's uh, surprise at the Annunciation that she would give birth to the Messiah even though she was betrothed to be married. Like, how is this going to be? Now, you know, most people who are betrothed to be married know where babies come from, and if an angel showed up and said, you know, you're going to have a child, the logical inference would be, yeah, after I get married, I'll have a child who? But Mary seems befuddled by the question, which led some of the Church Fathers to speculate that she'd actually taken a vow of perpetual virginity. But more under the the necessity of the thing, like why in salvation history uh, do it this way? Well, Mary, her, her, her greatest dignity is not her perpetual virginity, it's that she's the mother of God. And everything else that flows uh, doctrinally about the Blessed Virgin Mary flows from this primary dignity of being chosen by God, elected, predestined by God, to be the mother of God, or immaculate conception as well, flows from that dignity. And because of her uh, unique and intimate connection to the Son of God, in, in whose body we are saved, right? All Christians are members of the body of Christ. There's a real sense in which Mary uh, is the mother of all those who have been saved in Christ, the mother of the church, and and there, that seems to be suggested uh, by say Revelation chapter twelve, as well as uh, our Lord's 
language to the Blessed Virgin when he refers to her as woman in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 19, John chapter 2, which seems to evoke Genesis chapter 3 and the promise of a woman whose seed will crush the head of the serpent, uh, this association with, uh, uh, with the character of Eve, led many of the fathers to see in her a kind of second Eve, where Eve said no to the command of God. Mary says yes. She is the one who gives uh, uh, birth to the, to the God-man in whose body we're saved, the mother of the church. So she becomes a kind of icon um, of, uh, of Christian identity. Now, one of the things about uh, the path to holiness is that everyone has a path to holiness according to their own proper vocation, right? So not everybody's path to holiness is exactly the same. Uh, and yeah, there are objective pathways that for some people are, um, well, I should say there are objective pathways that are objectively superior, even though not all are called to them. And one of those that Christ identifies is, is virginity. In Matthew chapter 19, he commends those people who, as it were, make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. St. Paul does the same thing and advocates celibacy if, uh, if that is your gift. And so if you have a character who is the exemplar of, of Christian perfection, as mm-hmm. Mary is, as the mother of the whole church, it is fitting that this most perfect form of sanctity, this most perfect vocation, be realized in her. And yet she's also a mother, and so she is an icon, both of those called to the celibate state, uh, as well as an icon to those who are called to family life. Okay. Appreciate that. Uh, Kelly, thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's one that just popped up from KD on YouTube. How many times did Jesus use the words, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you? And what is the significance of these words when she uses them, when he uses uh, them? Um, yeah, thanks. So I, I, I haven't ever done a count. Uh, he uses them a lot, uh, to be sure, and I, you know, I've never given this any particular thought. But what comes to me right now, not I'm not particularly adept as a biblical scholar. I'm a historian more than a biblical scholar. But my my layman's view would be this is the equivalent of, you know, listen up, I really mean it. Yeah. Right. This is here, here. This is the stuff you need to hear. This I speak with authority, and what I say is true. This is very, very important. Very important, yeah. All right, very good. And then uh, one more as we're going to break from John. If Christ's death on the cross was enough for our salvation, why do we need penance or purgatory? Yeah, thanks. So how does the death of Christ on the cross save us? That's a really critical question. How does it, in fact, save us? And the biblical position and the Catholic position is that the death of Christ saves us by making us like Christ. Mm. It affects within us an interior change. It moves us from the state of sin to righteousness. It doesn't just forgive our sins. It actually causes us to stop sinning when it is properly appropriated, right? When it enters into the fabric of your personality, the imitation of the life of Christ, the, the grace of Christ that comes and transforms our personalities. And the, the application of Christ's death to my life and the transformation of my character um, doesn't happen automatically. It happens with my active cooperation. And so penance is a critical part of letting the grace of Christ work within me to change my character from sin to holiness. Well, there you go. Uh, John, thanks so much uh, for your email. And if you would like to send us an email for a future show, the address is ctc at EWTN.com. Hey, we have a golden opportunity for you right now because the phones are absolutely empty. This is your chance to get in 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-3986. Call to communion here on EWTN. Stay with us. 
call to communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. We have two lines open right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Tomorrow night on The World Over, Raymond Arroyo welcomes Philip Lawler. He is the editor of Catholic World News and CatholicCulture.org to talk about the latest news on the Synod of Bishops, also the Vatican-China Agreement, and lots more. Also, Carrie Gress will be along. She is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in D.C., author of the new book, The End of Woman, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. Always a fascinating program, The World Over with Raymond Arroyo, tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio and Television. All right, let's, uh, as we're getting some of these calls screened, let's go to this call that we got uh, on the EWTN listener comment line. Hi, this is Marilyn, and I'm in Minnesota. Our parish is going to have a festival, and um, they're going to have a casino night where there will be some gambling and wine and maybe other drinks, and I don't care for this in our church. We are a Catholic church, but it, it seems like this stuff has filtered in over the years. We used to be able to keep the the grounds of the church holy. What can I do? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches that uh, neither gambling nor the consumption of alcohol is uh, intrinsically immoral, right? These These are permissible. Now, both of them can be taken to excesses that are gravely immoral, Right, and so say for a person who is, uh, say, prone to a gambling addiction or to drunkenness, mm-hmm. where they were going to deprive themselves or their family of their livelihood or their reason, uh, then it's gravely wrong. And and I do think that uh, churches, if they're going to have events where these kinds of activities are happening, must take uh, measures to make sure that pe- vulnerable people aren't led into those kinds of excesses. Right, but the behaviors themselves are not intrinsically immoral and. In fact, if you were to look at uh, previous periods of Catholic history in our country, uh, even a few decades ago, I think you would find that the amount of alcohol and gambling uh, within Catholic parishes and Catholic families and Catholic rectories was probably considerably higher, not less, (laughs) than it is right now, right? Um, But your concern for keeping the church holy and, and for the integrity of the moral lives of people there is commendable and just and... So, you know, some of the precautions that should be taken is if this kind of activity should happen maybe in a parish hall or a parking lot, definitely not in a sanctuary, right? Not, of course. You know, not in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Um, and, you know, the, the necessary uh, 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 restrictions should be placed on the participation of minors and things like that. And yeah. People should keep an eye on their behavior, and if things get rowdy, they need to shut it down. Thanks so much for your call on the EWTN listener comment line. Now, that is always open, so if you want to call the regular number, 833-288-EWTN, either you know late at night or on the weekends when we're not doing a live show, well, then that'll uh, flip over to our listener comment line, and you can leave your recording. Right now, though, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin today with Jess, a first-time caller from North Idaho, listening. Uh, actually, he's from uh, Pullman, Washington. Jess, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi. I've been a Catholic my whole life, and um, recently started going to the traditional Mass um, because I was getting so tired of the fractious nature of, of what has been going on in the Church. And I'm actually thinking of 
going to the Orthodox Church together. I know this is a uh, uh, forum for those who are not Catholic to call in, um, but as the song says, I've got a million reasons to go, and just give me one reason to stay. Um, I'm so tired of the what I see going on in the Church with, with doctrine being run over, with uh, you know things coming from the highest end of our hierarchy, and our magisterium coming down, you know, praising other religions as, as just as good and, and holy and, you know, with a synod on the synod dot or the synodality or whatever is coming out, I think that's going to make it even worse. We have bishops encouraging really, really bad behavior. And then I look at the Orthodox Church where they actually have unity. And um, while there's different Orthodox churches, their doctrine is, is the same and their apostolicity is the same. And they're not dealing with with what I see as just a real roading of doctrine. And sure, sure. Yeah, I understand the I understand the objection, and I and I appreciate it, and I, I thank you for it. So, look, I'm I uh, I cannot come in here and railroad your conscience, and that's not my objective. All right, I will I will tell you why I am Catholic, why I'm. A convert to the Catholic faith, and why I willingly participate in the Catholic enterprise, if you will. And when I became Catholic personally 20 years ago, I came into the Church during uh, a time of massive public ferment. It was the sort of the height of the sex abuse crisis and all the news coming out of Boston. And I, of course, knew about that. And it really didn't deter me from becoming Catholic because, you know, I really didn't want to go to Mass particularly with, with Cardinal Law. I mean, that wasn't who I was motivated by, right, yeah, or yeah. or by whatever nonsense was coming out of this or that curial office. Right? Mm-hmm. I became Catholic because I wanted to be in the same church as St. Augustine or the same church as St. Francis or St. Dominic or Catherine of Siena or Therese of Lisieux or, for that matter, Cardinal Newman, who's now St. John Henry Newman. Yeah. You, you name it. I mean, I, I wanted to be in there with the saints and to share the same faith and the same sacraments with them, and I, I believe that I do, and I'm not holy like they are, but I, I were a participant in that same enterprise, which I should add encompasses both East and West. And it's not just Latin Catholicism, it's worldwide Catholicism. And uh, I also came in because I'm an historian by training, and I was keenly aware that whatever faults I might find in the church, and I can clearly find many, and I work for the church today, and I've my list of faults has gotten longer, right, since I <laughs> now know how the sausage is made. Yeah. Right? Uh, but whatever faults I might come up with, I am conscious that uh, such has always been the way, right? And so I don't necessarily think that the Church is somehow in worse shape today than it's ever been. I think that's a an ahistorical and, uh, frankly, kind of ideological way of reading the data. Um, I, I imagine you're aware of this, but, I mean, you, you can go back in history and find occasions when not just in personal corruption and immorality, but even over questions of doctrine— uh, members of the hierarchy have been uh, really kind of up to their eyeballs in 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 nastiness, right? It's it's gone on for a very long time, um, and uh, you know, to pick from the Latin popes, to pick one from uh, uh, John the twenty uh, John the twenty second, for example, who's a late medieval pope, mm-hmm. who um, was uh, he was no saint to be sure, but beyond that, I mean, he 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 promoted a, a heretical view of the uh, of the doctrine of the beatific vision that had to be corrected by a subsequent pope in a in a inf- infallible pronouncement in a papal bull, and I could just kind of go down the list and find these kinds of problems. Um, unlike you, I, I really don't think the East is immune to this, 
right? And and my 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 objective here is not to slam on Orthodox people and pull out their dirty laundry, right? I I don't really want to do that, but I think um, you, the perception that that Eastern Christianity is a monolith doctrinally that they that they don't have these kind of problems um, that they have a, sort of a perfect unity. I really think that that is a propaganda, on, truly. I mean, if I think if you look at the history, you won't find that to be the case. And, you know, I, I told somebody recently who contacted me, was thinking about leaving one religious communion and entering the Catholic mm-hmm. Church. Well, I don't think there's any reason I shouldn't share this. This person was going to leave the Reformed tradition and become Catholic. And I said, well, you know, um, I hope you do, obviously, but I'm not going to tell you what to do. Uh, but don't think if you leave the Reformed Communion and become Catholic that you're not going to have any problems. What you're going to do is you're going to switch the kind of problems that Reformed people have for the kind of problems that Catholic people have. And I would say the same thing to someone who is thinking of leaving Catholicism and going to Eastern Orthodoxy. Sure. You will you will maybe lose some of the problems that Catholic people have, and you will inherit the kind of problems that Orthodox people have. Yeah. Um, which they to be they absolutely have their own internal divisions, and they include up to and including doctrinal ones. And, I mean, uh, historically, I don't think I need to tell you that some of the, well, most of the great heresy arcs of history have come from Eastern Christianity, right? Now, I'm not slamming on Eastern Christianity. It's because they're creative theological thinkers with profound metaphysical education that gives them the tools to articulate novel visions of the faith. I mean, so there's, like, virtues there to be sure as well, but um, but that's where most of them have come from. I mean, including uh, uh, patriarchs of Constantinople, right? I mean, like yeah. Nestorius, for example. Sure, right? I mean, you sure. can just kind of go down the list and, and, and pick them out. Um, and, and of course, to assert a perfect doctrinal unity among the Eastern churches, uh, you have to be very selective about what you define as Eastern Orthodoxy because, I mean, to my way of looking at it, the Eastern churches includes, because those churches of the Byzantine Rite, Right, Chalcedonian churches, non-Chalcedonian churches, um, uh, Nestorian churches. I mean, there, there's all of them laying claim to the mantle of orthodoxy. Every one of them claiming to be apostolic. Every one of them claiming to be Catholic. Everyone claiming to be orthodox, and yet they can't agree among themselves about what even constitutes a valid ecumenical council. So, I mean, you, you, you're not you're not solved with these kind of difficulties. Um, now, you know, granted, they're not all the same difficulties that Catholic people have. Okay. Um, so the the motive in my mind to be Catholic is that you're persuaded that Christ founded the church, that the papacy is constitutive, essentially constitutive of the church's identity, um, that uh, that regardless of the personal charism of a particular um, uh, successor to, Ch- to St. Peter, mm-hmm. that the office as such does the job that Christ established it to do, right? And... I don't think that you're in doubt, doctrinally, about what is the Catholic faith. The reason I, I'm persuaded of that is that you you believe that you're capable of recognizing deviation from that. I think so. Right? Yeah, so yeah, you, yeah. you know what the faith... How can you define heterodoxy if you can't define orthodoxy? Mm-hmm. You know what Catholic orthodoxy is. We all know what Catholic orthodoxy is. It's, it's as evident as the nose on your face... And it has never been the case that any pontiff, priest, bishop, or layperson has always and everywhere perfectly defended it. But that doesn't stop us from knowing objectively what it is. And it's sufficient, right, 
to bring a man to holiness, which is ultimately, like, my objective in being Catholic, I hope yours, I hope all of ours, is it ought not to be, I want to be Catholic because I want to be on the right team. That shouldn't be my motivation. My motivation should be, I want to be Catholic because I want to be like Christ. I want to come to holiness. And I don't have to look to the left or the right for the splinter in my neighbor's eye if the Catholic faith gives me personally what I need to take the log for my own and arrive at the path of holiness. And the, the lives of the saints are ample testimony that it in fact does that. Jess, thank you so much for your very thoughtful phone call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Rocky is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Rocky says, is it permissible for a priest to offer general absolution to all the people in a healing mass? Nope. Not unless it's on a battlefield and you're getting ready to get bombed. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, general absolution is only permitted in in cases of urgency and danger of death. When there when there's when there's when it's physically impossible for the participants in a liturgy to all make it to the sacrament of reconciliation mm. and there's some impending disaster around the corner, like then then you can do it. The plane's going down. The plane is going down, exactly. Okay. But you cannot grant general absolution at a healing mass. Nope, 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 nope. Okay. Can't do it. Very good. There you go, Rocky. Thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one now from Celine on Facebook. Celine says, a friend asked me, why do Catholics have communion at every Mass? He says, Jesus only had one Last Supper. Also, why does the priest wipe clean the chalice? Okay, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, first of all, it isn't the case that every Catholic communes at every Mass. That's not the case. And in fact, for about a thousand years in the Latin Church, the laity communed only once a year. Now, um, it is necessary that the priest commune at every Mass okay. because when Christ instituted the rite on Holy Thursday in the upper room, that's what he instructed the apostles to do. Take, mm-hmm. eat, take, drink. This is my body. This is my blood. Yep. And so the, the perfect recapitulation of the rite as established by Christ requires the communication of the celebrant but doesn't require the communication of the communion of the lay participants, right? Um, but as to why you would, why anyone would need to do it, right? Yeah. Um, the, the, the act of communion, while not, for the laity, not essential to the integrity of the rite, is the kind of, um, sort of the culmination, if you will, of the one act of oblation. See, we understand the Mass is primarily a sacrifice and secondarily a sacrament of communion. Mm-hmm. But the sacrament of communion is is integrally connected to the sacrifice. This is my sharing in the altar of Christ's sacrifice. And so, the, you know, the, the symbolism is completed by virtue of that act of communion. Now, anytime you use the word symbolism with respect to the Mass, you always have to qualify. I'm not saying it's only a symbol. Right, it is the reality of Christ's body and blood. Both and, um, but it is, but it's certainly not less than a, than a symbol. It is absolutely a symbol plus plus something else. Okay. Um, now that plus something else is why the priest cleans the chalice, ah. right? Because the plus something else is the true body of Christ, His blood, His soul, and His divinity. And so we treat even the particles 
of the host and the particles of the chalice with, uh, with the dignity that we would treat the body of God, because that's exactly what it is. Celine, thanks for checking in on Facebook this afternoon. In a moment, we'll be talking with Carl, who is driving through Texas. Patty, a first-time caller from Columbus, Ohio. David in Delaware is listening. Also, Martha in Arizona. A couple lines open for you at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Call to communion for you on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN. Stay with us. Glad you're with us for Call to Communion here on EWTN. Hey, congratulations going out to another longtime member of the EWTN radio family, the great Ave Maria Radio in Michigan, celebrating, are you ready for this, an incredible 27 years with us. Congratulations to Al Cresta, Mike Jones, and their great team there at Ave Maria Radio from your friends here at EWTN. Uh, They're very similar to uh, another great group, Sacred Heart Radio out of Cincinnati, because they not only own radio stations, AM and FM stations, but they also produce programs heard on EWTN. And of course, Ave Maria producing Catholic Connection with Teresa Tamio. The Doctor is in. Al Cresta in the afternoon. More to Life with Greg and Lisa. You know, the list just goes on and on. These are wonderful folks. They certainly deserve your support. Um, just giving a little love there to Ave Maria Radio. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Carl driving through Texas listening on another great apostolate, Guadalupe Radio. Hello, Carl. What's on your mind today, sir? Um, concerning Mary being virgin before and after the birth, mm-hmm. uh, she was married to Joseph in a Jewish ceremony. But being celibate, how does the sacrament of marriage apply to her? It doesn't, and I appreciate the question. Uh, Mary and Joseph did not have a sacramental marriage. They had a, they had a valid natural marriage. Neither one of them was baptized, um, and Christ had not yet elevated marriage to a sacrament of the Church. So their marriage was good and holy and valid and natural and not sacramental. Carl, thanks so much for your call. We just uh, got a, a little statement here from Furman on YouTube. Furman is watching us from Lokichar, Kenya, in Africa. Furman says, nice to see you again. I just want to know why it takes so long to become a Catholic priest. Yeah, thanks. So at one level, it it doesn't take any longer than the ordination rite, right? All the bishop has to do is lay hands on you with the appropriate form, and, and voila, you're a Catholic priest. And there are rare occasions where the various other canonical requirements can be dispensed with and have been situations mm-hmm. where someone has made a priest like lickety split because of some urgency, right, or some special case. But the Church does normally require that priests be very well trained and that they be uh, scrutinized and selected so that they are, have the right kind of character and disposition and so forth. And there's a lot that a priest needs to know. I mean, you, you would like a priest to begin with to know the faith, to know the faith. And you can't presume that. And you'd like them to know it at some depth and to be quite articulate about it. And so that requires serious theological, biblical, and philosophical study, because you want them to have the skills to be able to articulate the faith rationally in a compelling way that could be persuasive to people who are outside the church. Um, They need to know the law of the church. They need to have an introduction to canon law, which is quite extensive. A lot of things a priest has to do, the things he can't do, he needs to understand those distinctions. Um, the priest needs to understand how to celebrate the liturgy 
and uh, go take a look at the Roman Missal. It's a big book, yeah. you know, and and a lot of, uh, and that's that's especially important, on, actually, to make sure they don't make mistakes in, in the right way of celebrating the liturgy. They need to have mm-hmm. some skill in moral theology so they can direct the moral lives of the people of God. They need to have some pastoral sensitivity, some training in how to actually relate to people and the kind of interventions that are that are pastorally helpful to people in the various crises of the passage of their lives. I mean, I could kind of go on and on. Um, increasingly, uh, in my country, um, priests, who, people who are seeking ordination, if they if their native language is English, um, are going to have to learn Spanish, right? Because the the Catholic Church is is pretty much a bilingual church. Uh, well, maybe I should, that's the wrong way of putting it. It's a it's a two language church. Sure. And many of the people who are being served don't speak English, right? And the, the Hispanic language is very important. So you have to be able to take that on. That's a that's a big kettle a of fish to yeah. to deal with. Um, uh, you know, we don't do a lot of this, but they should have some training in parish administration. How do you run a budget? How do you run a meeting? How do you work with the pastoral council? I mean, um, it's just a lot involved. And sure. and the alternative is you could you could pump out a lot of people that are unprepared and incompetent, and that would really scandalize the faithful. I think, and would yeah. it could be really ill advised. Furman, thanks for watching us in uh, Kenya, in Africa, on YouTube today here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Good to hear from you as well, my friend. Let's go now to Patty, a first-time caller from Columbus, Ohio, listening on the great St. Gabriel Radio. Patty, what's on your mind today? Hi, and um, thank you for taking my call today. Sure. Um, So I wanted to follow up on another caller who was talking about the virginity of Mary. And I remember... I recall, I guess I can't remember exactly, that there are many references to the pangs of childbirth, and I thought there was something like that in Revelation, and I thought it pertained to Mary. And I was wondering if you could explain the Church's position on what the birth would have been, was like, and so I can understand this from Church's teaching, because I'm a little confused with Sure, I can do that. I appreciate the question. Thank you so much. So with respect to the, the 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 woman with child crying out in the book of Revelation, and that's what you're referring to, there is a reference to the woman who will give birth to the Son of God, to the child who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, crying out in labor pains. But when that the identification with Mary there is typological. So at one level, that character in the story seems to be a symbol or a type of the church. And as the Church produces new Christians, as the Church is the mother of the faithful, uh-huh. um, there are definitely labor pains. There are definitely labor pains, in particular martyrdom, for one. Yeah. Um, but as a typology, but, the, but that character in the story also functions as a typology for the person of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who did not personally experience labor pains. And that's just the way typology works. You, you see one character or image in Scripture doing double duty for two things. Um, now, uh, and so in a metaphorical sense, we can talk about, you know, her spiritual labor pains, if you will, um, in particular at the Passion of the Christ. This is what we speak about Our Lady of Sorrows. Uh, in terms of what the, what the actual birth was like, well, you know, it was miraculous, right? Okay, so it, it involved the, the passage of the, of the baby um, through the body of the Blessed Virgin Mary in a miraculous way that, that left the body itself undamaged. Now, I mean, I don't think many of us have had a lot of experience with miraculous births like that. So, <laughs> you know, beyond that, I mean, I, I can't tell you, for example, 
how did Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead? That's a miracle recorded in Scripture. I don't know. He did. I don't know how he did it. That's for God to know. I don't know. I don't know, like, how God caused the baby to pass through the birth canal without damage, but mm-hmm. he did somehow. Yeah. Okay. That's where we have to leave it, Patty. Thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Uh, David is calling in from Delaware, watching on YouTube this afternoon. David, what's on your mind today, sir? Um, I just want to first say uh, thank you for your ministry. Uh, my wife and I have learned much from listening to your show. Thank you. Um, I'm an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion. I'm part of a team that visits the local assisted living uh, facility. A few weeks ago, one of my uh, teammates uh, went to visit one of our residents, and he declared that he was no longer a member of the Catholic Church, that he was a member of a Protestant denomination, and wasn't going to receive communion any longer. Um, I still pop in on my go to you know, say a prayer and uh, say hi. But my question is, if he would decide that he wanted to return to the church, what would his path be? Confession. That's all. He would just go to confession. Very simple. And, in fact, as you were speaking, one of the things that occurred to me was, I, I don't know how often that ministry team is able to bring a priest with it, but any time you can get a priest to go with you to that assisted living facility, uh, I urge you to do so, even if you have to twist the arm of some priests. And uh, my wife used to do this ministry. She would she would go meet the Catholic residents at nursing homes and then ask them, for example, would you like to go to confession? Would you like to go to communion? And if they said yes, she would go find a priest. And she'd say, Father, you know, Mrs. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so and Mrs. So-and-so and Mr. So-and-so. It's usually like four-to-one ratio of women <laughs> to men in those places. Yeah. You know, they would. none of them has been to confession in the last, you know, 15 months or 15 years, and they'd like to go. And the priest would say, well, you know, I, I don't know if I can fit it in my schedule, and I've got this other thing. And she'd say, Father, they haven't been in confession in 15 years, and they're all over 95. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. You know, yeah. And the priests, you know, even though sometimes it was hard to get them in the door, they didn't want to leave. Sure. And when they left, they said, thank you so much. This was such a good use of my time. I'm so glad I came. And I, I my wife has seen many occasions of people being reconciled to the church in just those circumstances. Hey, being 95, you know, sometimes you get confused. Other times it really focuses the mind. And the presence of a priest, would you like to go to confession? You never know what will happen. Absolutely. Appreciate your call there, and uh, thank you so much for it. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Hey, this weekend, be sure to join us for the Bear Wozniak Adventure that is coming up exclusively on EWTN Saturday night, 6 p.m. Eastern. You know, Bear challenges men to deeper conversion and to servant leadership. And the guests that he brings on uh, week after week are always solid and always on fire for their faith. It's a wonderful program. Do check it out. The Bear Wozniak Adventure, Saturday nights, 6 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Let's go to Martha now in Arizona, listening on her Roku device. Hello, Martha. What's on your mind today? Yes. Hello. Thank you. I just love EWTN. Thank <laughs> and you. And so appreciate all the program. Thank you. Um, I did come up with a second question. Um, you don't, may not be able to answer it. You might be able to point me to where I could get the answer. Um, you may want that second. Uh, my first one was uh, the difference between church hopping, which a lot of my Protestant friends do. You know, they oh, I don't like the pastor anymore, or you know, I you know, you know what I'm talking about. 
they want to be entertained. You know, the music, the pastor, it's, you know, it just seems so superficial in a way. The difference between that and what I've heard uh, you, Dr. Anders, say about finding the right Catholic Church for you, I, you know what I'm saying? I, I do, I, sure. I absolutely do. Okay, so uh, first of all, I'm, I'm, my job here is not to criticize Protestant worship practices, right, particularly. Um, I, uh, but what you're describing to me could be, could be characterized as consumeristic, you know, so I, 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 I'm, I'm a shopper. Um, I want the right product. It has to have the right features that appeal to my senses and my passions or maybe my intellect or whatever conception I have of what a religion ought to do for me, and I'm going to go shop accordingly. And uh, I, I don't think that that is entirely bad. I mean, for example, if, I, if I'm a Protestant and I, I go to a church that has, you know, absolutely abysmal music, abysmal preaching, terrible doctrine, a rotten children's program, and, and mean and nasty people. <laughs> you know, like I don't, I don't know a lot of reasons why I would necessarily stay in that particular location. No, right? no. Um, I think where when I was Protestant, when I was Protestant, the criticism from within inside Protestantism about church shopping would be that make sure you have your criteria correct. You know, are your criteria shallow? You know, is it just a matter of you know I want I want you know it's not enough to have a, a twenty thousand dollars worth of sound and light equipment. I want the church that has the, you know, the the three and a half million dollar budget put into sound and light equipment, right? Because that's that's what I'm interested in. Uh, or, you know, are your criteria more directly related to things that are going to impact the life of holiness of you and your family? That would be the way that we would have criticized that tendency within Protestantism. And, you know, too much of that kind of thing obviously degrades your capacity to make relationships and to be a part of a community. Sure. Um, you know, uh, I have done, on my own part, some measure of what you might call parish shopping. You know, I go from one parish to another, and 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 I, I don't have the luxury in my own diocese, just because of the raw number of parishes that exist, to be that selective. Like I, I couldn't, I couldn't pick a parish based on the price of the AV system, right? Yeah, like yeah. I can't, I can't afford to be that selective. Um, but I, what I, what I can do, is there are there are parishes in my diocese where, um, uh, let's put it this way, the priests are eager to hear your confession. They are eager to visit you in your home or when you're sick. Um, they're eager to provide spiritual direction. I'll just put it that way. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. And those are the parishes that I'm more likely to go to, right? You know, where my where my family is actually being uh, pastorally cared for. Yeah. You know, um, and, uh, and and to be sure, I mean, I've I have been in parishes where the doctrine of the faith is not preached. Now, uh, you know, if you live in a rural community and they're in but one Catholic parish in town. Um, you know, you have to put up with some of that because you you want access to the sacraments, right? But if I have an option between you know good pastoral care and the sacraments, and just the sacraments, I'm going to go for the better pastoral care, and sure. I, I I don't think there's anything objectionable about that. Uh, Martha, is that helpful for you? Yes, it it is. Can I ask my second question just real quick? Sure, so I can real quick. Somewhere? Real quick. Oh, okay. 
you know, we're called to give, uh, you know, the, uh, to the, the poor and uh, serve the, um, those imprisoned and all that. H- how do I go about finding the best places to give to? Um, um, I, I do give to EWTN, and I'm not just saying that for the heck of it. But, I mean, I know that uh, as far as giving to a prison ministry, I don't think I'm going to actually go to a prison, <laughs> yeah, being um, an almost 70-year-old woman. Okay, yeah, sure. So, you know, I think um, relationships are, are, are a great way here. You know, if you have—I'm sure there are people in your parish and your diocese who are probably directly involved in works of ministry, and you can talk to them, you know. Yeah. And, and of course, you don't have to— you don't have to give to every type of social ministry, you know. I mean, that's you there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them, and you, you know, it's not like you have to check the prison box and then the homeless box and then the food, you know, yeah. box. You, you you don't have to do it that way. And of course, I'm sure your your diocese probably has a uh, an office of Catholic Charities uh, that that attends to all of these needs, and so those kind of diocesan appeals also kind of cover all your bases. Um, but in, in my experience, I mean, generally. Uh, you know, if like if my if my family has a relationship to a particular Catholic school, for instance, and I have had a good experience and trust the administration and like what they did for my child, that that's an institution I'm more likely to give to. It doesn't mean that there aren't other Catholic schools around that are doing a good job. Right, right. You know, and that's how that's generally how development works is through relationships. Yep, Martha. Thanks so much for your call. Appreciate that. Here is Molly now. Uh, Molly actually called in on Friday. Couldn't get to Molly, but uh, we're glad that she called back in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, listening on her Alexa device. Hi, Molly. Uh, thanks for calling back. What, what's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I was wondering, how would you respond to someone who claims baptism, baptism is not necessary for salvation, and that all places in Scripture referring to baptism, like First Peter 3, Romans 6, etc., uh, refer to a spiritual baptism— in the, like just being baptized in the Holy Spirit and not a reference to actual ritual baptism with water, um, but rather just like placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Um, sure. And then in, in John 3, the waters referred there are actually in reference to amniotic fluid of natural birth, but not baptismal waters. Hmm. Sure, absolutely. So uh, that is, pardon me for saying so, kind of a ridiculous hypothesis. It's ridiculous. And it is no one approaching the text, I think, in good faith, uh, would draw that conclusion unless they were motivated by polemical concerns. Mm-hmm. Right. They have, they have a, a, a theological pre-commitment to desacramentalize the faith and probably to oppose Catholic practice. And so they read the text in the most tortured and unnatural way possible. I mean, I think it's the only way to honestly discuss this, because every— but scripture is fairly vague on the mode of baptism. It doesn't give us a lot in the way of physical description of what actually happens in baptism. But such uh, as it exists, every description of baptism includes the application of water to the physical body. I mean, you know, Acts chapter 8, um, uh, Philip, the, the evangelist, is evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and he tells him about the Christ, and uh, the eunuch's response is, Hey, look, there's water here. Why, you know, what's to stop me from being baptized? And they pull over to the side of the road, and he gets baptized in a ditch, you know. Um, uh, the Gospels speak about Christ's disciples baptizing because there was a lot of water over here. You know, I mean, this, every description is of 
the application of water to the body. The, the, to suggest that John 3 refers to amniotic fluid makes absolutely no sense of the context, because Christ begins the discourse by emphasizing that something is necessary beyond physical birth. You have to be born again. You're mm-hmm. born the first time from your mother's womb. You have to be born again a second time in water and the Spirit. And the fact that 2,000 years of Catholic, well, Christian interpretation of that text has always understood it in the most natural sense, namely that this is a reference to water baptism. And look, as you correctly pointed out, it's the scriptures that say, 1 Peter 3, baptism now saves you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Romans chapter 6, we die with Christ in baptism and are raised again with him to new life. Christ himself in Mark 16, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. I mean... Uh, the necessity of baptism is is woven throughout the text of the New Testament as well as the 2,000-year history of the Church. And it requires, I think, a like I said, a kind of a polemical commitment, pre-commitment to reject that, uh, to come up with these tortured interpretations. Appreciate your call, Molly. Hope that's helpful for you. And uh, thank you for calling us back. Here now, Michael, a first-time caller from Denver, listening on the Great Catholic Radio Network. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello, I am a EWTN media missionary, and I'm eager to do all I can to help Protestants understand the truth of the Catholic faith. Fantastic. And I thought I had an understanding about the rapture, but uh, then I heard 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse, say, 15 and following, and it seems to me like that's basically saying what I hear Protestants saying about the, quote, rapture. Can you clarify Yeah, that, thanks. Please? Appreciate it. Yeah, it absolutely does not teach the Protestant doctrine of the rapture. What First Corinthians, excuse me, First Thessalonians 4 says is that at the return of Christ in glory, we will be caught up into the air. That's a Catholic doctrine. Yeah. When Christ returns at the end of time, we will be caught up into the air. That's a Catholic doctrine. That's what the text says. That is not what proponents of the rapture believe. They add several elements to the story. The so-called Protestant rapture is the belief that before the glorious return of Christ at the end of time, that Jesus will come in secret with a coming that is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. Uh, So there's three comings of Christ and not just two. And that at the secret coming of Christ, he will spirit away the quote-unquote true believers, take them to heaven, then unleash wrath upon the earth for seven years, um, at the end of which time, those who had been spirited away in the dark of night will return with Christ at the glorious second coming, or this in this case, third coming of Jesus, uh, at which time Christ will set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, in Israel, and, and rule the nation, uh, the nations of the world politically, uh, and coincident with the resurrection, the reconstruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and, the, uh, and, and uh, taking up again the sacrifices of, uh, of sacrificial animals uh, uh, prescribed in the Old Testament. So, wow. a, so a resurrection of Jewish practice, temple sacrifice and ritual, and, um, and an earthly king ruling over the nations from the, from the capital in Jerusalem after having snuck everybody away seven years previously. So, so all that, that whole apparatus is included in the, in the Protestant doctrine of the rapture. And it explains, for example, the knee-jerk, uncritical support for Israel. 
Now, I'm not saying I'm not making a policy statement here about whether or not the United States should support Israel. I have no position on that for purposes of this radio show. I'm talking about an uncritical view that says we have to be in there politically, geopolitical policy based on the assumption that it's necessary to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and, and resurrect temple practices as a precondition for Christ's return. All of that gets baked into dispensational Protestantism. None of that's in the Bible. Appreciate your call, and let's uh, stay in Denver, and we're going to talk now to Gerald. Uh, Gerald, we just have about a minute left. What's on your mind today? Yes, Dr. Anders, I think you're fantastic. One question. Uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month or two ago, uh, C.S. Lewis debated some Catholic scholar, a woman, or, or a, uh, uh, a a nun as such, and she, and he really, she really put him in his place about something, and then he, he said that he stopped writing about religionists and started writing about about uh, uh, fiction and things like that. What exactly did she say? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So um, C.S. Lewis wrote a book on miracles defending the historicity of miracles. Okay. Elizabeth Anscombe was not a nun. Uh, she was a Catholic. She was a Catholic philosopher and arguably the greatest female philosopher of the 20th century certainly the greatest Catholic female philosopher in the English language of the 20th really? century, one of the greatest female philosophers of all time. She's just an absolutely just scintillating intellect. And uh, she debated Lewis, I think, at the Socratic Club at Oxford and, and completely demolished his argument in favor of miracles. And you would say, well, why would a Catholic want to defeat an argument for miracles? And her, her commitment to the truth led her to the conviction that bad arguments for the truth should be refuted. And, Makes sense, and yeah. by all accounts, she demolished him in that debate, uh, which uh, which unnerved him, and he lost his taste somewhat for apologetics after that. You can read about it in most Lewis biographies. Uh, the one by Alistair McGrath uh, is fairly good on the topic. Very glad we could uh, sneak you in there at the end of the show, Gerald. Thanks for listening in uh, Denver to Catholic Radio Network. Dr. David Anders, thank you. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday here on EWTN, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. Check out the podcast anytime you wish by going to EWTN.com. On behalf of Charles, Matt, and Rich, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks so much for joining us. We will see you tomorrow here on Call to Communion. God bless.